From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thank you so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Colin Donovan is in the house. If you would like to uh, be part of the program, we would like to have you give us a phone call with your question for Colin. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Ace McKay handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window. And it may be uh, may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. How are you? Pretty good. Are there any, is there any truth to the rumors that you will be the next head football coach at the University of Alabama? No, I don't. I don't think so. Uh, you know, I know a little bit about football, but my pedigree is not too strong on that. Uh, Northwestern Wildcats, Chicago Bears, the old era under Hallis, of course, is fine. But. So I don't think that's going to happen. Okay. Well, that's what that's what somebody trying to hide the fact that you were going to become the next head football coach at the University of Alabama would say. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, Saban and I were born in the same year. <laughs> I'm glad somebody can retire. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> got an email from Sherry, and she says, I have two adult children who were born and raised Catholic and attended all Catholic schooling, but at this time they don't practice their faith. I pray daily for both of them. I know God desires their return even much more than I do. Any suggestions? Well, that's a t- tough nut to crack. Um, you know, there was a time in this country and many other places where going to a Catholic school didn't guarantee that the faith would be transmitted. And, of course, the parents' role in that, too, is to to foster that, uh, to foster the graces are given through baptism, uh, uh, strengthened through confirmation. Uh, I personally think the lack of of a youthful confirmation waiting till the teenage years has been a pastoral mistake, but uh, I didn't get to make that decision. Because uh, I think, uh, you know, when you're 8 or 9 or 10, you need you need that grace. But in the end, it's the, the will of the person and the parent, um, you know, the child has will make that decision uh, when they grow up. So I think you pray for them. You encourage them. Maybe you, uh, maybe you give them a good book from some time. Uh, you answer their questions. Uh, you... You know, if they have an interest in, in, in the faith at all, to resources that will 
flatter that interest, provided it's a good one. Uh, and beyond that, it's prayer and penance uh, and waiting on God's grace and his providence. 833-288-EWTN. We have one open line for you at 833-288-3986. Lee says, the three wise men gave three gifts to Jesus. Did they know that he was going to die and save the world from sin? That's a good question, and we have absolutely no information in sacred scripture or history to answer it. However, if we go from the other prophetic things that were said, so, for example, Isaiah says the virgin shall conceive and bear a child. It was not necessarily thought by Israel that the, uh, that the Messiah, the anointed one, the king of Israel, would be, the mother would be literally a virgin, but that it could be, uh, would be simply a young woman, uh, which the text also means in the Hebrew. Now, in some places, certainly among the Greek-speaking Jews, it came to be that this was translated in the explicit way to mean a virgin. But it wasn't a necessary conclusion. So did Isaiah know that the incarnate, the, the, the messianic figure he spoke of was that it was Christ and he was going to be God-made man? We do not necessarily know that. We know that he was inspired to write that. We know that it may have applied to other figures uh, in Israel history, kings who restored religion and so on. Um, And so that could be a possibility. So I don't think we can claim regarding the Magi that they knew anything more than, say, the prophets. But they knew certain things, and some have said that what they understood from reading the skies— Uh, we would call it astronomy. They had a mixture of astronomy and and seeing in in the heavenly bodies the moving of the Spirit as well and and ascribing meaning to that, that it may have been the constellation in which the star appeared, a kingly uh, constellation or some other factors to that. But I don't think we need assume that they knew uh, more details than are given to us in sacred scripture. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. May would like to know if you could explain the Divine Mercy Chaplet to her. Well, the Divine Mercy Chaplet is an appeal to God. Uh, It's an appeal to God for mercy. Uh, It comes from uh, revelations of our Lord to uh, Sister Faustina Kowalska that the Church has since approved canonizing Sister Faustina, approving the practice of the devotion and the image and other things associated with Divine Mercy Sunday, which will come the Sunday uh, after Easter this year, as it does every liturgical year. So the Church has approved that, put her stamp of authenticity on it. And so the meaning is that Christ is ready to give mercy to all. He's ready to give mercy to us. He's ready to give mercy to the sinner. He's ready to give mercy even to the person we think deserves it least. And typically, we'll have a number of people we know and other people, maybe relatives or friends or public figures, that we think deserve no mercy. But yet, Christ is prepared to give it to him. He has an ocean of mercy, as uh, he said to St. Faustina. So 
The prayers are there to stimulate us to pray for souls in need. It can be souls at the hour of death that have a special need to hold on, as it were, to fight against the struggle of despair and and that. Uh, It may be for those who we know are publicly degenerate or have something in their life that needs to be corrected or a family member that needs that. But the idea is that we appeal to Christ that in his providence, if the person has any opening to his grace, his light, his mercy at all, that that opening be widened so that Christ can pour his mercy in and hold them to his breast and comfort them and heal them of their woundedness. That's that's why the prayer was given to us. That's why we pray it. And it's become sort of uh, customary over the years to, uh, in a couple of different situations, one at 3 o'clock, which is considered to be the hour. The 3 o'clock hour, which was noted by by, uh, our Lord and Sister. Yeah, uh, prayed then, and also at uh, the bedside of dying persons. Right, that is greatly, uh, has a great appeal uh, to God or a great uh, intercessory power with God in those moments. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. Straight ahead, we're going to talk to Joe in Pennsylvania, Richard in Pensacola, Florida, Jill in Fremont, Nebraska, Garrett in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls as well. Pick up the phone and give us a call, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. As we like to say, we're giving you unfettered access to a professional theologian, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, member of the Pontifical Marian Academy, and all kinds of other accolades that have been heaped upon him down through the years, and potentially the next head football coach at the University of Alabama. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, January is the month dedicated to the most holy name of Jesus, and we are all about it here at EWTN Radio. You can join us for this devotion to the most holy name of Jesus with books, rosaries, devotional candles, litanies, statues, everything holy name can be found at EWTN's religious catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. 
First stop today is the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Joe is listening on the EWTN app on Roku. Joe, you are on with Colin Donovan. Uh, yes. I have a question. There's some background information, and I hope to hear your, your input. My question is, how does abortion tie in with consecration of Russia? What I'm trying to say is, at one time Father Trujillo said on a Catholic Blitz show, that the consecration of Russia was validly done in the 80s. If Russia was converted, there will be a period of peace all over the world. There will be no more wars and no more murders. But abortion has been going on nonstop since 1973, has never stopped. So the war against the unborn and murderers have never stopped. So how can Russia be consecrated if there's always been the wars this, in, in this period, and there, will be, and there was no period of peace. Well, I, you'd, you'd have to tell me where you got the no more wars, no more murders part, because that's not in the text. So that's not part of the promise. Uh, what was promised that Russia would be converted. And the meaning and the, the expression in the Portuguese, remember, she's speaking to the children in Portuguese, is a turning around. It's what our convertere, uh, what convertere would mean, would mean that to reversal of course. And the reversal of course that Russia did is they abandoned the atheistic, practical atheism of their state. So what have they got instead? They have gotten a sort of a Caesaro-papism of the Russian Orthodox Church and the Russian government. But it's not atheistic. And so that was the thing. This is what was persecuting Christians throughout the world in places like Russia and places like China and places like Cambodia and Laos and North Vietnam. This, was the, this is what had to be ended. And for that to end, the thing which at the core of the communist ideology, a practical atheism, an atheistic uh, belief, a militant state atheism, that had to be changed. And it was in 1984. Now, the role of abortion is a general thing. That's just one of the fruits of sinfulness of disbelieving in God. If you disbelieve in God, you're not going to believe that man has any intrinsic value. Therefore, you can make decisions. I can kill it before it's unborn. I can kill it at the end of life if I want to. It doesn't matter. It's immaterial. Who cares who's going to punish me? There is no God. So, but the sin of, of abortion is broader than that because they're Christians who believe that abortion is legitimate. They do so wrongly, and they do so grave, with grave error and, of course, grave sin when they participate in abortion. But it can come about in a lot of ways. So when, Sister Faust, when the Lord appeared to Sister Faustina in the 30s, he said that Warsaw, which had become a cesspot, if you will, uh, largely because I think of prostitution, the uh, children, you know, women becoming pregnant out of wedlock and abortions in order to end, end that, quote, problem. And so that a Warsaw would be punished because of abortion. And it was. The Nazis devastated Warsaw. That was, their, that was the punishment of Warsaw. St. Alphonsus Liguori explains that if we will not have God's protective providence he will withdraw it. Then the forces of evil are unleashed. And that's what happened in World War II. That could be what ha would have happened in World War III. And most people who follow this in military affairs and international affairs 
believed that the 1980s was ripe for World War III. And so that was averted. Now, the thing which was asked at Fatima was consecration as a, this is a sign of our surrendering a problem into the hands of Our Lady. The consecration of individuals. That's what the Brown Scapular, this is what the de Montfort consecration is about. The consecration of homes, of parishes, of dioceses, of cities, of nations, of the whole world. This can be done and, and was done. When Pius XII did a consecration to the Immaculate Heart of the whole world, the course of World War II ended and you changed rather, and you can see how the Allies went from losing. In '42, they started to incrementally win to their until they came to a victory by, by the by the natural means of the Allies coming together and and fighting, of course. But in God's providence, it provided for that another sign of the value of consecration. So. Situations in the world today, the Ukraine-Russia situation, the Pope consecrated that, and we hope that we will have fruits from that. Each nation should be consecrated because each nation is under threat internally, still by communistic ideas. They, they don't have them in Russia anymore, but they certainly have them in the United States and Europe. So how is that going to be ended? Are we going to consecrate our nations to Our Lady for the end of the practical atheism of our politicians and social leaders and cultural leaders who are have us on a similar path of abortion and euthanasia and all of the things that they had in Russia? That practical atheism. We have it in this country. That's what the consecration is for. And so it needs to be used. It was established as a means that could be used. It's a belief by the Church of Mary's intercessory power and her role in union with her son, in bringing souls to, to her son. It's a statement of all of those things, and therefore it's just by that statement. It's an appeal to God for grace for a nation, for a family, for an individual. That's what took place in the 80s. It's taken place again in different places, and it should continue to take place until that era of peace is fully established. And, of course, it's only fully established when our Lord comes again and the, our, this earthly kingdom of the church becomes the eternal kingdom of the heavenly Jerusalem. There's no magic bullet, is there? There is no magic bullet. It's not magic. <clears throat> it doesn't mean, I say the formula, it comes about. That's magic. That's not what the, uh, is called for here. It's the change of hearts into Marian hearts. That's what's called for. And a Marian heart looks to Christ for him to save us, and that's what we want to do. And that's what we have to do as individuals. Both huh? as individuals and as uh, a church and as society. Thanks so much, Joe. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Jill is a first-time caller in Fremont, Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Jill, you're on with Colin Donovan. Okay. Hi. I am wondering about in vitro fertilization, um, mm -hmm. wondering why the Church is against it other than the mass production of embryos. I recently um, have gained some friends who have children uh, by IVF, and um, I've just really been interested now mm -hmm. um, because sure. I, I think their children are wonderful, my friends are wonderful, but I'm like, oh, I know that the Catholic, and they are not Catholic. Mm -hmm. uh, well, some of them are, but um, but I'm just like, 
<sighs> yeah. I feel like I need to know more about this. Yeah, and the the church is against it because it's not the design of God. Um, it's it's a kind of consumerism if you think about it. Uh, IVF surrogacy. All the Pope just the other day was decrying surrogacy as other popes have done. Children are the fruit of love. This is God's design, and they should come into a loving family. They don't always come into a loving family. They're born outside wedlock, all kinds of situations, in which case you, you do what's necessary to raise the child properly and to do, you know, provide for them in terms of you know, uh, whether it's adoption or something else or raising it by yourself. And women have, have heroically done that for millennia. That's the context, that natural parentage. This is the will and the design of God. Now, IVF, let's say you said, well, it's all right if you do this in a Petri dish. What IVF means in vitro, that means it's not in vivo, it's not in the living, but it's under glass in vitro. It's done in the laboratory. The child is not made by God, although the... Uh, you know, the germ cells, the egg and the sperm, come from human beings, from parents, presumably. But even sometimes that's not true if there's something wrong with the cells of the parent, one of the parents. So here you, you get, you might say, borrowed cells. You fertilize them under glass. You implant them in the womb. And you might say if that's all that were done the seed of the two parents, and it was planted in the womb of the appropriate mother, and the child is truly their own. Hooray, they have a child. But the child, on average, has eight dead siblings at that point. Because if you believe life begins at conception, as they fertilize eggs, they call the ones they decide aren't fit for some reason. They're developing a little abnormally or there's some genetic... They call them. Some die that way. They implant them in a woman in some number, not knowing how many of them will find a proper home in the mother uh, and settle in, as it were. And some don't. What do they do? They call them inside the mother. She can't bring eight children. She, some, one or two women have brought six or seven to, to septuplets, six tuplets, sex tuplets. But that's very rare. So to be safe to the mother and to the children for their well-being, they reduce it down to one or two. Those children are killed. This is the reason. When you start playing with life, you end up, you can decide when life begins then surely you can decide when life ends. And in the IVS process, those decisions are made multiple times. That's why the church says it's an abomination. Now, people make those, they they're desirous of a child, they make that innocently. So you're quite right to, you know, take that all into account in dealing with your friends with great charity. But it's not something that the church can approve for very good reasons both theological on the nature of man, but also on the moral character of what is done within IVF. Does that help, Jill? Yes, thank you very much. You're very welcome. We appreciate the phone call today. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Richard in Pensacola, Kathleen in Boise, Matt in the great state of Kansas, Tim in Spokane, Washington, Luke is in Lakewood, Colorado, and we've got one line open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. As advertised, we head next to Pensacola, Florida. Richard is listening on Guadalupe Radio today. Richard, thanks for holding. You're on with Colin Donovan. Hey, thanks for having me. Got a question. I was praying the glorious mystery, the last Hail Mary, mm-hmm. where it quotes Revelation twelve seventeen. It says, the dragon became angry with the woman and sped off to declare war with the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commandments and their witness to Jesus. So I know it's Mary. So what does the rest of her offspring, what does that mean? It means us. We are the rest of her offsprings. And it tells you at the end of the sentence there. Yeah. Well, we are the rest of the offspring. Remember, she has... She has uh, she has a child, Jesus, and we are his brothers and sisters. The father we know is our father, who is our mother. Mary is our mother. The church explicitly teaches that she is our mother um, in various ways and titles given to her, mother of the church. So she's mother of the mystical Christ in the same way she's mother of the incarnate word. So she has both of those roles. They're intrinsically united together. They can't be separated. So we are her children down through the centuries, the children of the church, those who are baptized into Christ's passion, death, and resurrection, those who are members of the mystical body of Christ. Um, They all have her as their mother. God bless you, Richard. Thanks so much for the phone call. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Kathleen is in Boise, Idaho, listening on Salt and Light Radio. Kathleen, you're on with Colin Donovan. Thank you. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. My question. I've been reading about Saul, where Mm -hmm. the Philistines came in and defeated uh, Israel. Mm-hmm. And then <clears throat> they, that one night they decided to get the Ark of the Covenant and take it into battle. And the Philistines captured the Ark. Why wouldn't? Why didn't they die? Well, they did, in a way. They took it into their temple that turned out to be a mistake. And what happened to their temple? It was destroyed. It was the temple of an idol. So they got their comeuppance, and you're, you're saying, why did they not die in the same way that the priest who touched the ark to steady it did not die? He had that, they had that as a command from God, and yet he disobeyed that. The Philistines were you know, sort of like a lot of people today, sheep without a shepherd, that, or like those in Jonah's day, don't know their right hand from their left hand. 
But in the end, their idolatry did them in. Uh, and that comes later, of course, historically. But um, I think that's the reason why uh, they didn't have an explicit command uh, not to touch the ark as did the, uh, as did the priests. So about that, that's about what I can make of it. <laughs> you, you got more to your question? I, amen. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Kathleen. We appreciate it. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Matt's in the great state of Kansas listening on KSCG Radio. Matt, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello, gentlemen. How are you doing? Pretty good. Good, good. Hey, my question is kind of two-part. Uh, First of all, I mean, how old would Jesus been at the presentation in the temple, being Joseph had to take the Holy Family into Egypt, you know, immediately, essentially? Mm -hmm. And the second part is, is it the temple in Jerusalem, I assume, yeah? Yes, uh uh-huh. Well, we don't know this series of events. Some say they re, re, uh, they sojourned in Bethlehem for as long as uh, two years. We don't know that, but that's some speculation on that. Uh, Bethlehem is only six miles from Jerusalem. It's a donkey ride, but you can go there. So the presentation of the temple could have come in the weeks after the birth. She had to be pur- purification uh, and so on. So the the time frame there is certainly a reasonable one with respect to their time in uh, in Bethlehem, and then finally their sojourn in uh, uh, sojourn in in Egypt uh, came as a result of the Magi coming. That's again we we have our just as we do all of our Lord's life in one liturgical year, the distance between Christmas, the Epiphany, and the baptism. You know, all of these are are liturgically based. These are not his. These are not in a chronological order. So we have the purification and the presentation will be in February, uh, whereas we've already had the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan as an adult and moved into ordinary time. So the liturgical order of things is not necessarily the the uh, a key to this either. Uh, the biblical order is also is very uncertain because. No time frames are given, except we know that the killing of of the innocents occurred uh, of children under two years. So there must have been some doubt uh, whether how newly born Jesus was, because he made it two years just to make sure he didn't miss anybody, didn't miss him. So that's why some speculate, well, as long as two years they remained or up to or close to two years. But we don't really know. So... Uh, we can speculate all we want, but we're going to have to wait to ask the principals that question when we get into heaven. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. We head next to Lakewood, Colorado. Luke is a first-time caller listening on Catholic Radio Network. Luke, welcome to the program. You're on with Colin. Okay, thank you. My question is is that when a priest like consecrates the blood or sorry, not the blood, the wine and bread at a mass, is that somehow going back in time to the crucifixion of Jesus? And at that same time, is Jesus feeling pain every time the like bread and wine are consecrated at mass? No to both questions. 
It is as the Council of Trent taught in uh, 1570. It is a, a sacramental mode by which Christ, who is eternally with the Father, the, uh, the value of that sacrifice is made present. So the event in that sense is made present through the twofold consecration of the bread and the wine. Christ, body and soul and divinity is in heaven. No pain, there can't possibly be pain. And this is why, this is how, in fact, uh, an otherwise incomprehensible prophecy by Malachi is, could be fulfilled. That from the rising of the sun to its setting, a pure offering is offered to God. How would that be done? Except that in the Mass, in all ages and times and places, this pure sacrifice of Calvary is presented to the Father as if to say, look at what your Son did for his people. It's a perpetual appeal to the Father for the world. And mystically, some mystics have said, and even Scripture suggests it, that were that to stop, the world would come to an end. Padre Pio said as much, that were it not for the Mass, the world would have ended already. The Mass is a perpetual appeal, intercessory appeal of the Son to the Father on behalf of the world. So, no, Jesus is not suffering. No, we are not jumping in a time machine and going back. Certainly, mystically, spiritually, many Catholics are certainly thinking of that event and the price that our Lord paid in rem remembering the cost of our salvation, as we're encouraged to do by Scripture. Uh, but that, that's what it is principally, except for the miraculous character of the Mass itself as a representation of the sacrifice of Calvary. No human agency can do that any more than any human agency can allow somebody to say, this is my body and this is my blood, and it to be their body and their blood. In this case, Christ is saying it, and it's his. 833-288-EWTN. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Tim is another first-time caller in Spokane, Washington, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Tim, you're on with Colin Donovan. Great. Thank you very much. Mike, I, I feel like I'm being pulled back to the Catholic Church, but mm -hmm. feels good. My question is, <clears throat> as a believer, as a believer, why do I need to confess my sins to a priest who is also a sinner like I am. Oh, uh, except that you aren't. You're confessing it to a priest who is a minister of the redemption. Remember, Paul uses this expression. He's a minister of the redemption. He's ministering the redemption to those whom he has taught, you know, and to the Timothys and the Tituses who have, he have left in place to oversee the church, the churches that he founded. They are ministers of redemption. It is Christ which is hearing that confession. Yes, the man must minister it to you, but somebody must minister the gospel to you. Somebody must minister the sacrament of baptism to you. Somebody must minister knowledge of mathematics to you. We are, in our human nature, we must be ministered to by those who stand over us as parents, as teachers, 
and this is what the church does. So in the beautiful prayer, and you can find this online if you want, that the church uh, uses uh, for the prayer of absolution. I can't recite all of it, but I'll, I'll make a stab at it. God, yeah. the Father of mercies, who through the death yeah, and resurrection of his son. son has brought salvation to the world and the forgiveness of sins, the ministry of Christ, I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He is absolving. He is not forgiving. And that, uh, that expression has a meaning. He is ministering the forgiveness that Christ intends. Now, the penitent can either receive it or reflect it. If they're lying to the priest, if they're, if they're just going through the motions because daddy's outside watching them go into the confessional, they're not getting forgiveness because he knows, God knows, whether you're authentic. The priest may not know. He may guess at it. If you say to the priest, well, that's all well and good, Father, but I just don't think I can, you know, I know they're serious. I just can't give them up. So, you know, thank you for what you're doing, but I can't give. The priest says, well, I can't absolve you from your sins. And this fulfills Easter night because Christ himself gave this authority to the church when on Easter night he appeared and said, peace be with you, my peace I give you. Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you shall receive, they are retained. In other words, that power was given to the church. We had this reading a couple of days ago in the, in, the, in the Roman liturgy regarding the, the, the healing of the paralytic. Jesus said that you may believe that the Son of Man, oh, who is that? We know it's a figure in Daniel. The Son of Man is the Son of God, of course. But it's a Hebraicism for a human being that you know that a human being, that you may know that human nature can be an instrument of divine forgiveness, he said to the paralytic, take up your mat and walk. So this is all of this is instructing us. Easter night, the story of the paralytic, the other examples when material things are used for uh, in miraculous ways, the handkerchiefs of Paul leading to somebody's healing. Since when do handkerchiefs heal? My doctor's never prescribed a handkerchief. But because Paul had used it, Paul had touched it. He was a graced individual. He was an apostle. God used this instrumentally. And so the human nature of the priest, weak, sinful, whatever he is, even if he be a mortal sinner, if he's doing what the church has given him to do and, and absolving you from your sins, you're forgiven. Those are Christ speaking those words, not simply the priest. So the trail, the trail of pebbles leading to the truth that the church has the ministry of redemption and forgives sins are all there in Scripture for those who have the eyes and an open heart to see it. God bless you, Tim. We uh, will be praying for you on your journey. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Adolfo is from the great state of Florida, but he's visiting us here at EWTN in Irondale, Alabama. Adolfo, you're on with Colin Donovan. Yes. Thank you for taking my call, uh, celebrating my 38th uh, year of anniversary with my wife here. Oh, God bless you. That's marvelous. Thank you. Yes, my question is, you know, when I was younger as a child, um, I would go to confession and receive the communion, and they used to 
make, you know, not make us, but instruct us that, you know, once you take the communion, you do the sign of the cross. But a few years ago, I went to a, an additional course and saying that, well, you don't need to do that because you're actually receiving Jesus there. You don't have to do the sign of the cross. So I'm sure. a little bit mm-hmm. confused. Well, it's it's fine. It, it's a pious act. Remember, the sign of the cross is a profession of faith in the Trinity. It's a profession of faith in our redemption. It's the cross. So that means we know what we've received is, you know, the, the fruit of the passion of Christ. Uh, it's Christ himself. So it, it's a pious act. But it's, it's also true that it's not a necessary act. Everybody has uh, a different things. Uh, they might do. Now, there are some logical things that we, we would not do. For instance, if we're carrying Christ in us, we don't genuflect to a tabernacle when we walk by it. We have Christ within it. And a lot of people get in a habit of doing things simply because they were taught to do it, rather than thinking about, okay, I'm carrying the Lord with me. Do I need to, you know, to genuflect when I pass our Lord in the tabernacle or something like that? We don't genuflect to the other communicants coming around us as we go about, so we don't have to do things like that. So there is a logic and intrinsic reasoning there that can take place, and it certainly doesn't say that we need to cross ourselves, but it's a pious habit, and there's nothing wrong with doing it. It it's reminding yourself of this great gift, of the passion that uh, brought it to you. Uh, and and that's perfectly fine. And I think that's probably why m- many a Catholic sister in schools taught their kids to, you know, to do something like that after they've received to acknowledge uh, the reception. I want to invite you to check out Catholics Coast to Coast, Saturday afternoon, 2 p.m. Eastern, and then again Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Host Ace McKay introduces listeners to two of the newest members of the EWTN podcast family at Podcast Central. Starting with Ways of the Father, it looks at the heresies of the early church. And in a series called Magnificat, you'll learn how to build, how to model our Blessed Mother to be humble in trusting in God and obedient in our lives. That's Catholics Coast to Coast with Ace McKay, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, Saturday afternoon, and 6 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, Sunday night, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Francis, a first-time caller in Erie, Pennsylvania, listening on the Station of the Cross. Francis, you're on with Colin Donovan. Blessings upon both of you. Thank you question during mm-hmm. the, the Annunciation and at the end the angel told Mary that her cousin Elizabeth was six months pregnant and up in age and the story tells us that uh, Mary went to help her. I, I was just thinking in my own heart that maybe the angel mentioned maybe could you go and help her because she's up in age but the point I was making is that when Elizabeth heard Mary's voice, <clears throat> she said, or excuse, heard her voice, the child in her womb leaped with great joy, recognized mm-hmm. in the presence of Jesus and Mary. Mm-hmm. And then when she met eye contact with Mary, she said, blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of thy womb. How did Elizabeth know at that time that Mary was carrying the Son of God? Bless you again. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, uh, 
There is nothing publicly in Scripture on that. Uh, we can make some suppositions, I think, of course. Uh, first of all, there was the revelation to Zechariah, her husband, and you can imagine the searching of Scripture and the uh, pondering of the implications of the birth of John the Baptist by those two people, by Elizabeth and Zechariah. And so in doing that and seeing what Scriptures pertained and what great thing, perhaps her knowledge of the great holiness of her we don't know whether she a first cousin or second cousin, but anyway, a relative uh, of the same descent uh, as herself. Uh, she would have been familiar with Mary, uh, probably. We know that uh, from the mystics, at least, and this is not scriptural knowledge, that uh, Mary's parents, uh, he, the father was a priest, that they lived in Jerusalem at some point. So, we don't know what was going on simply there. We know that Elizabeth was herself a holy woman, and we know that holy people sometimes have inspirations which God gives them, that gives them the light, and they know it. Uh, the mystics have described, the mystical theologians have described the certainty of knowledge that comes with some, with some graces. And that may have been given to Elizabeth in that manner. But you're quite right. It's a beautiful scene, and I've meditated and even spoken publicly on, on this in talks, that we see a number of things in that scene. First of all, Elizabeth calls her the mother of God, the mother of my Lord, she says. The Jews didn't use the word Lord lightly the way the Greeks did. Kurios was just a, you know, the Lord. Your Lord and Master, even the English today, you know, the House of Lords. Well, they're not lords in the sense that Elizabeth meant. The church would eventually define Mary as the mother of the Lord, mother of God, meaning the mother of a person who was God. But it's all there in that text. Why? How is it that the mother of my Lord should come to visit me? The minute, the sound of your voice. Think of this. We've been talking about the instrumentality of human nature earlier. Mary's voice didn't say Christ reached out and touched John. The sound of your voice, the minute I heard it, the child leapt in my womb. There was a communication of knowledge and grace there in that moment. And Mary's voice was the instrument, which means Mary was the instrument. So there are a lot of graces uh, and lights, I think, there between the two of them. Um, we don't know precisely on that point, but it seems an obvious one. And it's something to rejoice over ourselves uh, because it really, it, the, the redemption kicked off at this point. Christ present in the womb of Mary, the forerunner present in the womb of Elizabeth. And so the redemption of the human race began in earnest. Diana wants to know what the difference is between the deity of Christ and the divinity of Christ. Deity just said he's a God, and divinity is his divine nature. He has the nature of God. It's saying the same thing, just two different words that are, are, are two different ways of stating it. And Mr. Member of the Pontifical Marian Academy, Donald wants to know, how do I explain Mary's importance to someone who doesn't believe in free will? <laughs> well, 
I'm not sure that you Good can <laughs> without without crossing that bridge first uh, to get over there. Uh, well, let's say everything is ordained in great detail by God and we have no free choice about it, then it should be enough that God ordained Mary to be the mother of Christ and that should do it for you. So maybe it's actually simpler for such a person than it is for us who have to suck up the idea that all of this was done by her cooperation and that teaches me something I must do about cooperation. <clears throat> is Jesus, Roger wants to know, the only divine person... Excuse me. <clears throat> The only divine person in the Bible to appear as a theophany. Well, Jesus was not a theophany, really, in a strict sense. Um, Christ, many, many scholars believe that the angelic presentations, whether it's the three men in the book of Genesis or whether it's the burning bush, um, whether it's... Uh, occasions when the angel of the Lord are spoken to, that these were theophanies uh, of, of Christ, actually, and that all the theophanies involved Christ, not the Father, not the Spirit. Uh, but that would answer the question is, yes, Jesus was the only divine person to appear in a theophany, because even in the burning bush, it was the Word who would have been saying, I am who am, uh, to Moses. And finally today, um, Perry wants to know, how should we navigate which sins should be made illegal? For example, abortion versus adultery. The graver sins. Uh, many societies have made, many Christian societies have made adultery a, a crime as well uh, as it being a sin, moral, morally being a sin. This This is a difficult area, and you have to you have to weigh the question of the common good against that. You could have a very police state-like atmosphere in which there is no freedom, in which, for example, there is close observation of everyone to know whether they're engaging in sexual sin, for example. And Thomas Aquinas argues that, you know, is that really a good idea? Some things should be tolerated because the necessity of civil control uh, that would be needed to prevent it is too high a cost, and that has to be the basis. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, producer Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Ace McKay, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great weekend. Back at it Monday. Until then, God bless. <laughs>